Well, we're going to look today at a very timely and important passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Again, this book, this letter was written by an older pastor, Paul, to his young protege, Timothy, in a church that was full of trouble. And, and Paul is first and foremost encouraging Timothy to stay and battle because it's worth it. And then he gives him the tools of how to battle it. And we've gone through all of those. It's been a rich and wonderful experience. And Paul, in all of his letters, has always focused on the leadership of the church because he fully understands he's there for just a brief while, and then he moves on to another congregation, and it's the leadership in place. He fully understands that's where everything is going to, as they say, rise and fall. Not, not that that leadership is, is, is something that in and of itself will make the church rise and fall. Listen to what I'm saying. As that leadership follows Jesus, all right? As that leadership is following Christ and living obediently and modeling that for the rest of the congregation, then the congregation will flourish. If that leadership fails to follow Christ, follows their own hearts, follows their own agenda, Paul knows that is where the adversary will get in and everything will fall apart. So I don't ever want to say the church rises and falls on leadership. That makes it sound like we just need to get a good CEO in here. That's not what I mean. The church rises and falls on the leadership that is committed humbly to following Jesus in all things. And that's what he's going to describe here in in this this part of the letter, chapter 5, verse 17. And again, you might look at this and go, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not an elder. You know, what's this all about? I think you're going to find that it actually does, and we're going to enjoy it together. The elders, he said, are good leaders who are good leaders, the elders, verse 17, who are good leaders. Now, the word elder there, in the, in the New Testament, it, it's the same word we get, presbytery or presbyter or, or elders or pastors. And in this context, it is, it is speaking clearly of those handful of pastors in this church who have given themselves so much to this labor that they do it full time. Indeed, they do it full time. Indeed, they are paid. The work of managing and the people, the lives, the teaching of the gospel, the bringing up of disciples in this church is so laborious that it's important that these men do it. They could not do this and have another job. Not every, listen, not every elder in the church was paid. The majority were what we would call laymen. But there were some who devoted themselves entirely to the work of the church, and they didn't have time to have a job because of that, and so they were paid. And so when Paul's talking here, he's talking really, in some sense, you would talk about the, this is the paid pastoral staff is what he's talking about, all right? That's, that's who he's speaking of here in this context. He's speaking specifically of those that we would, we would see as our church staff, not that the church staff is separate from the other elders. It's the, 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 there's a, always a plurality of leadership in a church. And when I was at Warnell Road for 10 years, I was the only paid staff, and then we brought Rich Tuttle on, and he was a worship leader and elder, and he was barely paid <laughs> a little bit. So there was, there was some, some, but he was still full-time at his regular job. And then the other eight or whatever were all laymen, But as the church were to grow, if God decided that that church were to grow larger than it did, we would probably have to bring on some additional staff. And I just found out a few weeks ago that Warnell Road not only now has a full-time pastor, but they do have a second associate pastor, I believe, who's also full-time. 
So they have two. And as the church grows, you might have several. And so here, Paul is speaking specifically to the leadership that is what we would call paid staff, full-time leadership. That's really what he's talking about here. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, you know, that doesn't mean double pay. That's not what that means. Um, If I had a room full of pastors, you'd all laugh at that. But it doesn't mean double pay. But he is talking about there are two kinds of ways we honor those that are our pastors, all right? There's two kinds of ways. And he's talking about they're worthy of a, of a double honor. And he begins with this. He said, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. There is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, Paul is saying here, though, those who are worthy of the double honor are those who what? Work hard. I, I, I serve you the Southern Baptist Convention as the Senior Director of Replanting and Revitalization for Southern Baptist Churches through the North American Mission Board. That's my job. It's what I work at every day. And when I travel, that's what I'm traveling to do. So I have this opportunity to encounter churches all across North America and speak to hundreds of churches all across North America. And not personally, but, but speak to and encounter thousands of pastors every year all across North America. And I've got some really Sad news for you. Not every pastor who gets paid works hard. Not every pastor who gets paid works hard. Some pastors have a very weak work ethic. And Paul here is making it abundantly clear that if you're going to be a pastor, it is hard, laborious work. That's what we say when we talk to young guys who come and say, I think I'd like to pastor a church. I think I'd like to replant a church. I think I'd like to revitalize a church. Well, it is really hard, laborious work. I mean, in many ways, think of it as owning, if we, have some, if we have some business owners in here who own a small business, in many ways, it's like that. It's like, I have relatives who own a dairy farm in North Missouri, all right? They've owned it for, ever since I can remember. They're my cousins. They're older than me. They've owned it all my life. And uh, so now they're past retirement age, <laughs> and, uh, and, and my, my cousin, who she would like to sell off the herd and travel, you know, but her husband is like, I still like doing this. I still enjoy doing this. But here's the deal about being a dairy farmer. You never off the clock, right? I mean, those, 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 cattle, those cows have to be taken care of every single day, whether you're there or whether you're not. It's just constant work, and those of you who are farmers know what I mean, but I think dairy farmers in particular. And so in many ways, being a pastor of a church, it, 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 you're, you're always on the clock. It's hard work. I'm not sure if I shared this with you or not, but if I did, most of you have forgotten it, so I'll share it again. You see, when, when you're a pastor... It's not like, okay, I put in my 40 hours pastoring this week, so now I can do whatever, you know, I'm on my own, or my 50 hours or whatever. You're never really, you're never on your own. You're always representing Christ, representing the ministry, representing the church, always. It's hard work. And Paul says, those who receive double honor are those who work hard. There's an 
strong implication that it is hard, laborious work. It's not for everybody. So I had been on the road. This was a few weeks ago. I'd been on the road a significant amount of time and traveling and talking to people. And, and some of you probably perceive this. I, I am an, I'm an extreme introvert. I have a really difficult time. Um, uh, I'm not an introvert in front of a large group. In fact, the bigger the group, the better. <laughs> but it's, it's, I, I, some of you maybe have no idea what I'm talking about. But I just don't do, I just, I'm just, it just drains me sometimes to be in constant conversation with people. I really need time alone. And, and I, and, but, but the Lord helps me battle through that. And in my weakness, he's made strong. And, and I'm not using that as an excuse. But it's just, it's just something that I am. So after I've traveled for a long while and encountered so many people and talked to so many people, all, all I want to do is come home. And there's only one person, really, that um, it's like being alone when I'm with her. <laughs> and that's my wife. You know, I never feel like, well, I need time away from Jill. I never feel that way. I, just, I love to be with her. So I look forward to coming home. So I had looked forward to coming home and being with her. And I had to go back out again in two days. And I didn't have much time. And so uh, somebody had given us a gift card to Longhorn Steakhouse at some point. And so she said, let's go up to Longhorn tonight. And I would just gotten in town, and so we were up there. And we were having our meal at Longhorn. And uh, it was a great conversation with Jill. And nearly toward the end of the meal, the uh, waitress, the server, she comes by and and she puts her hands on the table, and she, she leans into my space, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm, sort of a, I'm sort of an introvert, and I don't want you. She leans right into my space, you know. And the difference is I'm out here. I'm waving my arms when I'm in front of you. I'm talking. I'm talking about bluegrass and all that stuff, and I do a podcast and all that. Jill, if Jill were, you don't know if Jill's here or not. She just comes in. She sits quietly. She leaves. But she is not an introvert. She just loves to talk to people and encounter people. So she's very different than me. She's not out front and all that stuff, but she loves people. So when this waitress put her hands on our table and sort of leaned in, I just recoiled. But Jill leaned into her like, well, she wants to say something to us. And I leaned back like, you're invading my space. And then this waitress, she says, would you mind if I shared a little story with you? And right on, the, right on the tip of my tongue, I mean, ready to come out of my mouth was, really, I'd rather not. I don't have, I'm, I'm, seriously, I wasn't going to be rude. I was gonna, you know, I'd really rather not. I, I don't have many nights here with my wife. We're sort of on a date, maybe some other time. Seriously, that was, that's what I was going to say because I didn't know what was going to come next after this little story she was going to share. I didn't know if she was going to talk about, you know, some multi-level marketing or what. I didn't know. But in that one instance there where I was just about ready to say, I'd rather you didn't, I caught a glimpse of Jill and her eyes. And at that moment... Uh, those were not the loving eyes that I had looked into when we got married. Those were piercing eyes that said, if you don't tell this woman you want to hear her story, life's going to get real hard for you tonight. <laughs> it's true. And so I, I've been there a long time. So I, 
immediately I, I bit my tongue and I sort of stopped. And I, I just said, all I said was one word. I said, well, sure. And then she said, you know, I don't really go to church. But I've got a lot of issues and problems in my life. And she said, I have a friend who went to this church. And she told me about how what the preacher was saying was really helping her. And so she said, she sent me the link. And she said, and so I've been, this is when I was at Baser. They still have my sermons on, on uh, live stream or, or whatever. Uh, the, you still watch them if anybody wanted to when I was serving at First Baptist Baser, Kansas, a few months ago before I came here. And she said, I don't go to church much and, at all, and I, and, but I've been having some issues and some struggles in my life. And she said, I have a friend who goes to church, and she told me this pastor was preaching, and his sermons really spoke to her. She said, so I've, I've, been, I've been watching him online. And she just said, I, I just want you to know how much what you have said has really blessed me. Can you imagine if I had told her if she'd been watching me preach on the live streams, and then I'd walk in her restaurant and said, no, nah, I really don't have time to listen to you today. I came that close to doing it. I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying I have to remind myself that being a pastor is hard work, that with this role of standing here and opening God's word and proclaiming his truth comes tremendous responsibility, and I am never off the clock. There's never a time when I can say, nope, I've checked out right now. I have to have boundaries in my life in some way, but I've got to be careful about those boundaries. When a, when a, when a, a server says, could I share a story with you? My answer as a pastor ought to always be, yes, I want to hear your story. But it's hard work, and it's laborious work. And I just want you to know that when you are looking for a new pastor, you're going to have to look for someone with an incredibly high work ethic who understands that what he's getting into is is not just a position of, of some authority and some responsibility and some honor, but it is a very heavy workload. So Paul talks here about the reason that your pastors receive double honor is because they work very hard. The implication for that is if they don't work very hard, they don't get the double honor. And that's part of the problem. But what's the double honor mean? What's he mean by that? Well, he starts out in verse 18, for the Scripture says, I love this. If if this is the only reason you came today and you're thinking, this has nothing to do with me, this is just a cool little insight into the text here. He first, Paul, pulls from the Old Testament, from the words of Moses, He says, for the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. It's an old rabbinic, old rabbi way of teaching. If you wouldn't muzzle, it's like you take something so so small and insignificant and compare it to something significant. If you won't muzzle your ox while he's treading out the grain, then why in the world would you not take care of the pastor? He's talking here about providing for his needs, paying him is what he's talking about. And then he says, then he moves into the New Testament and he uses the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke and he says, the worker is worthy of his wages. You know what's significant about that? The Apostle Paul says, for the Scripture says, and then he quotes both of those. The book of Luke, 
which probably by this time was not yet fully circulating. But Paul and Luke knew one another, and we can assume that that, that they'd been talking, and Paul understood what Luke was writing. And it's this wonderful insight to us to say that the Apostle Paul understood that the Gospels that were being written were Scripture, just like the Old Testament. That's an amazing insight. He says, the Scripture says, and then he gives both, the words of Moses and the words of Jesus as found in Luke. So he's talking here about paying them, all right? But also, the double honor is not just paying them, but it's respecting them. It, it, and along with that, the double honor doesn't mean you honor, it doesn't mean you honor your, your paid staff twice as much as the non-paid staff. You don't, you don't honor the senior pastor twice as much as the person who works the third Sunday of every month in the nursery. That's not the point. The point is the pastor gets double honor. He's honored because he serves, just like the nursery worker, but his double honor is he's actually paid to do it as full-time. And so there's that double honor, and that's where, the, that's where the double honor comes from. It's being paid and also being respected and honored for doing it. And that's, that's, those are both important. And then he says, obviously, you're going to pay them because you won't muzzle an ox while he's treading grain. And Jesus actually said the, the worker is worth his wage. So how much do you pay a pastor? Well, I hear that all the time. It's a good question. And frankly, you know, there's all kinds of studies out there. There's all kinds of, uh, you can go online, your own Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway Christian Resources and Guidestone Financial Resources have all kinds of, you, you can look and see what churches approximately your size in your part of the country, you know, what, what, in your budget, what they pay pastors. You can find that information out there. But I do think there is a, a very simple way that I've always used and I've heard others use to talk about how much should we pay our pastor. It's really not that complicated or complex. I think you should look at your church body that has a gathered church membership, and you, you say, well, what would the average pay of a person in our church who is of the same age, has the same schooling, and has been in the same line of work for that amount of time, what would the average that the person in that church would make? And that's what you should pay your pastor. He shouldn't live well below the average of what someone in the church with his education and experience would make in their job, and certainly he shouldn't be way above what someone in that church should make. Does that make sense? Just sort of the average. It's practical stuff. Aren't you glad you came today? I really do believe it's important to look at that. And Paul's talking about money here. So if the... If the pastor is worthy of double honor, both being paid and paid what he's worth, not what you think he's worth, be that low or high, but what he's worth, and that he's willing to work and has a strong work ethic, and you honor him by giving him this position and respecting him in the position, then there's something else that comes. Verse 19, don't accept an accusation against an elder, a pastor, unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Now, why is that? Well, I have been a pastor for 40 years this month, since I was 18. My dad pastored for over 50 years, and I can tell you that that's, that's 90 years between the two of us, I guess, but I can tell you that as a pastor, you sort of, you're, you're out there, you're visible, and there are some people who are um, not always particularly emotionally stable and emotionally well, and you become an easy target for them. 
And, and the one thing the pastor, the most other than his call, his salvation in Jesus and his call to ministry, the single most important thing other than that that the pastor has is his character. And to be vulnerable at the point that just one person with an agenda could disrupt the pastor's character is something that Paul is guarding against because there are many people who have a variety of problems in their life and sometimes just a need for drama. And how better to create drama around me and a need to be in the middle of something than to make an accusation against the pastor? That'll immediately get me attention and make me the center of attention. And I've had that happen to me on a few occasions, not many. My father, I've seen it happen to him on a few occasions, not too many, but a few. And even early on in Orno Road, we had a a young lady start coming, and at first it seemed as though uh, she was very engaged in what was going on in the church, wanted to help, wanted to do ministry, and so forth. And, um, And then all of a sudden, like a, a light went on, she just sort of turned, and, and she began to say really hateful, mean things about me to many people in the church. And, um, and so she wasn't yet a member. She was just attending. And so when uh, a couple of the elders and I, she wanted, to, she wanted to join. And so a couple of the elders and I confronted her about these things she was saying. Basically, she was saying that I was rude to her and I ignored her and that I had... Uh, not responded to her needs and not, not offered to pray for her and just not given her pastoral care and I was showing favorites and, and all of those kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see it that way at all in any way, shape, or form. And so it's, I started getting these, I'm not making this up, I started getting three and four page single space emails at three o'clock in the morning where she would just tell me all these awful things about me and about my family and about how I was leading the church to hell and all that. And it became pretty obvious this, this person's pretty troubled. So I began to check with some other churches she'd been a part of, and, you know, every single pastor said, yeah, I knew she was going there. And I feel like, well, why didn't you give me a heads up? And they were like, well, we didn't really want her coming back. I go, well, thanks a lot. That's a good deal. So we, had, we actually had a Christian counselor, still do, in our, in our church there, in our building at Warnell, and he has his office there. And so um, our elders told her, they said, look, we're not going to let you join at all, but we want you to go see. And so she went to see the guy, and he called me. This has never happened before, ever, in my time with him. He called me, and he said, look, don't, if you and your elders meet with her, he said, you need to have a... You need to tell her you're going to record it, and you need to set your camera up, and you need to record because he said she is living in such a delusional state. She will create any kind of situation to put herself in the middle of some drama, and nothing is beyond her ability. He said she's one of the most dangerous personality types you can imagine. Well, I, she just showed up at church one day, right? I'm the pastor. I got to deal with her. Look, if you're going to be a pastor, you're going to have individuals who have those kinds of problems that are going to come, and they're going to make accusations against you. And Paul knew that, and so you can't take the accusation of one. And here's the deal, church. Satan has wired us in such a way that we do tend to believe all the negative things we hear, whether they're backed up or not, because he would like to destroy the character and credibility of leaders. And so Paul is putting a warning here saying, look, if, if you're going to get double honor, then you comes with that a much higher standard, all right? 
But because your character matters, it, the, the thing brought against you can't just be one person. Remember when they arrested Jesus, the problem that night was they couldn't find two people to, to agree that he'd said those things? It, they could find one, but they couldn't. So eventually they found two. In other words, who would lie about it. So Paul is making it clear here that, that you have to put some protection around your pastor, and, and the accusation brought against him has to be more than just one person. However, if it is brought, and if it is two or three, then verse 20, publicly rebuke those. He's talking about pastors. Publicly rebuke those who sin. So the rest will be afraid. And then he says this, 21, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ and the elect angels. You realize (laughs) that when a pastor sins, he's not doing it in private. He's not doing it hidden. You think, my goodness, the, the church knows, the community knows. Listen, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and all of heaven knows. It is incredibly serious. And to that end, Paul says, we have to take seriously church discipline. I've told you before, there really is no problem in any church that can't be solved with biblical church discipline, but most of us have no idea what that is because we've never seen it done. And listen, if you're going to, and by church discipline, I don't, you say that and people get all these, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about church jail time where we put you in a room back there and you know, it's not like a penalty box in hockey. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. You know, and the whole point of church discipline as we talked about in previous sermons is basically to know that if I continue to live in a total unrepentant state and totally uh, un- unwilling to acknowledge my sin and it's a pattern, then it's up to the, the, my church family to come along me and say, just like it my, my biological family would if I was doing something stupid in my own life and say, look, you can't keep doing that or you're going to kill yourself. And to say to, to a believer, look, you can't keep living like this or, or you're, going to, you're going to ruin your witness, your testimony, and, and you may need to check to see if, if what you have is really saving faith. And if your church family is not going to tell you that, then who in the world is going to tell you that? And I need a church family to tell me that. And so, but church discipline, if it's to be effective, has to be even more harsh and more focused on the leaders. And that's where we've broken down even recently. Clearly, the pain you've all suffered here is real, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you're not alone in that. I mean, even this week, Last week, the whole Willow Creek Church board and pastors all resigned. What went on at that place for all those years? And One of the largest churches in North America. And I could go down the list of several pastors I know personally who are friends of pastors of some of the largest churches in North America who are no longer in the ministry. Because basically, they insulated themselves in such a way that even an accusation of two or three couldn't do anything. Paul says you cannot bring, it can't just, you can't bring down a pastor because one person is nuts or one person has something against him. But on the other hand, if two or three bring a charge, you have to look at that charge. And if there is sin there, you have to rebuke that sin. And he says publicly. And I, I don't understand, I mean, I do understand why churches don't do this 
I, I, they, they, they look at the, the short run and say, look, if we do that, we're going to cause all kinds of problems. And I know sometimes when I pound, I scare children. I know that. I do that. That's my fault. I wake them up. They're sound asleep. And then I do this. And my wife says, you don't need to pound. You'll wake up the babies. So I just did. Sorry. When I was at Warnell, I used to, during the song service, I always wanted to say hi to the kids. And so I would go to the preschool area and I would just stick my head in and, you know, just tell the kids, you know, hi, this is your pastor. Glad you're here. And my wife said, would you please quit doing that? You just totally upset them. Every time that door opens, they think their parents are coming. And then she said, they start crying for 10 minutes after you leave. And I said, well, why didn't the other teachers tell me that? They said, she said, because they're not married to you. So that's a true story, actually. So anyway, I have no idea where that came from. Oh, boy. Okay. But rebuke them publicly. And I, I, and I know why churches don't want to do that, but the, the, the short gain in not redoing, doing that is far worse than the long gain of doing it. And there are some churches right here in the, our region who tried to cover up some stuff that a pastor did. And they covered it up pretty good for a few years, but then when it came out, it was far, far worse. I mean, this is really serious stuff, and this church is pretty messed up here in, 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 in Ephesus. And Paul is saying, look, you, first of all, you've got to have right godly men in place, really godly men. If you have godly men, they're going to work really hard. If they're going to work really hard, you've got to pay them what they're worth, and you've got to give them double honor, not only honor of being a pastor and the respect that comes with that, but actually paying them for that. But if they're going to receive double honor, you've got to protect them. You can't just let one person tear up their character. But on the other hand, if there is an accusation, two or three or more bring it, you've got to examine it. And if it's true, you've got to rebuke them. And you don't rebuke them in private. Listen, because the honor is not in private. The honor is in public. You rebuke them in public because they've sinned not only in front of the church, but in front of God, Christ, and all the heavenly angels. And then he says... And do and at the end of that verse, 21, and observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing out of favoritism. You don't give any pastor a pass. Every pastor knows that I am held to a higher standard. I serve at the North American Mission Board, and there's about a hundred and 50 of us who serve on staff, more or less. Most of them live there in, in Atlanta, Alpharetta, Georgia, work in the building. But a number of us live remotely like I do and work remotely. But a few times a year, we all come in and have, these, have our big, we call them boot camps. And whenever we're all together, whenever we're all together, not just boot camps, but like I go sometimes and there's like 40, of, I'm part of the senior leadership, so there'll be senior leadership will be there. Whenever we're all together, our president, Kevin Azell, always reminds us of, this is just, it's a ministry job, I'll grant you that, and we're serving churches at the North American Mission Board, but we're not a church, and he's not a pastor, he's the president, but he reminds us every time we gather about our code of conduct policy, his, the, the board's code of conduct policy, and they're very serious about it. And basically, it's the Billy Graham policy, it's the Mike Pence policy, and as an employee of the North American Mission Board, I have signed on to it, and I am accountable to it. 
So as, as an employee, and frankly, I don't want to get too much into the woods here of how you, what you do with your pastor, but at Warnell, our pastoral staff, wherever I would serve as a pastor, when I was at Baser for a year, here's the deal. I'm never alone in a car with a woman other than my wife. Now, someone says, well, what happens if you're driving your car in a thunderstorm, right, on 435, and here's this church member, and she's broken down? What do you do? Well, it's pretty easy. You give her your car. You stay by her car in the rain until she sends back help. <laughs> now, you can laugh. You know, I, I realize, being, but I'm, not, I'm serious about it. That's exactly what you do. You say, well, doesn't that offend her? Doesn't that make her feel like? That's not the point. Never go to lunch alone as a pastor with a woman other than my wife. Never be in the home, any residence alone with a woman other than my wife. I mean, I could go on and on like that. And we're held accountable to that. I mean, there's a higher standard of accountability for those of us who receive a double honor because our, our fall is so much more impactful. And so Paul makes it really clear here to young Timothy that yes, we honor our pastors because they work very hard, but at the same time, and we protect them from false accusations. But if an accusation is real, we don't sweep it under the rug. We don't ignore it because it needs to be rebuked not only for the good of that individual, but for the family of God to realize that, that things do matter, that things are important, that there are standards. And, 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 and we don't show favoritism in that. It's across the board. And, and to that degree, even, you know, Kevin, our president, has said, you know, these are the rules. He says, if you break the rules... We'll love you and hug you, but we'll love you and hug you right out the door by 4 o'clock that day. You're done. Do you understand that? I mean, there are very, I mean, the, 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 the boundaries that are set for us there are, are clear. And, and if we're stupid enough to cross them, we knew it when we had in it. The problem is sometimes we have these foggy lines out there that we shouldn't have. And that's true in your own marriage. It's true with what you look at on the internet. It's true in all of those things. Now, at least we think about legalism. I love this next passage. You go, where did this come from? Where does he? Now, as he, you read this, you go, well, that's pretty heavy stuff. And I mean, that's. But then he goes into verse twenty-three, and then in verse twenty-two, he says, "Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in their sins in the sins of others." In other words, he's, he's saying what he said earlier. Look. An elder, a pastor is an important. Don't be too quick to take someone who's inexperienced, who's not been a Christian very long, who hasn't been through very much, because he'll, you, you don't know what his past behavior is like, so you don't have a good predictor of future behavior. So don't be too quick to do that, he says, clearly. And then he says, don't share in the sins of others. In other words, just because other people are getting away with it and doing it doesn't seem all that bad. And then he says, keep yourself pure which we talked about for a moment. And then we get into verse 23, which seems a little out of place, but it's really not. He says, don't continue drinking only water, 
but use a little wine for your stomach's sake because of your frequent illnesses. Okay, it's like he's been, he's been some of the heavy, heaviest duty stuff about pastors and leaders and double honor and paying them and rebuking them and, and, and rebuking them in front of the congregation and not showing favorites and remaining pure and not delving into the sins like everybody else. Oh, and by the way, it's almost like he's going, oh yeah, you know, uh, oh, what else I was going to say? Oh yeah, uh, go ahead and take care of yourself and don't just drink water, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. It's like, where did that come from? What, what Paul, what's, what's up with that? Oh, I think it's absolutely clear where that came from. Paul's telling to be pure. But do you remember earlier in our sermon series, there were those who said, in order to be pure, you have to abstain from certain foods, you can't marry, they had all these extra things they were adding to the gospel. And Paul is making it clear to young Timothy that the road to purity is not legalism. It's not legalism. And, and obviously this young kid, among his other problems of being young and inexperienced and wanting to quit and beat up on, he, he, anybody here got bad stomachs? Anybody here got bad digestive systems? You know how that wears on you and wears you down? It did in the first century too. Clearly he had some health problems. And it was extremely common. It was the, I could list for you, you could look it up, you can Google it. In the first century, it was, wine was considered absolutely medicinal for a number of illnesses. And so it just made sense for Paul, first of all, to say, obviously, as a pastor, you got to take care of yourself physically. But secondly, if you're, just, if you're just drinking water as sort of a way to remain pure and you're getting sick because you need to drink the wine, you think you're missing it. Your, your purity doesn't, your purity is not from you. It's from what Jesus has done for you. Now, let me say real quick, before I lose half of you and win the other half, let me just say real quick, there are a hundred thousand reasons for you never to drink. Among them is, by most standards, one out of nine people who start drinking will end up as an alcoholic. I fly a lot. If I thought one out of nine planes I got on was going to crash, I would never fly again. So I'm just giving you that. Those aren't my numbers. I mean, it's true. And some of you have alcoholism in your family, and you think you can handle it. Well, maybe you can, but what if your son can't, and he's seen you drink all your life? There's, there's a thousand reasons not to drink. Okay. But here's the other thing. Just because you say, I abstain, doesn't make you holy doesn't make you closer to Jesus, doesn't cure your heart, and doesn't mean that you don't dive into other sins. And so Paul is telling young Timothy here, I want you to remain pure. I don't want you to get mixed up in the sins of other people. I want you to remain pure. But Timothy, I hear, and apparently he's hearing that Timothy is sick and he doesn't want to take the wine because he's saying, Timothy, be realistic. You need to take some wine for your stomach's sake. Don't just drink water only. Because Timothy, being pure It's what Jesus has done for you, not what you're doing for yourself. You didn't save yourself. You can't keep yourself pure. And the more you love Jesus, the more you'll want to live a pure life. The more you'll love Jesus, if you're looking for some rush out of alcohol, it's because you don't think Jesus is enough. If you're looking for some rush out of pornography or out of an affair, it's because you don't think Jesus is enough. It's idolatry. 
And so what he's saying here and what he says in other parts of the scripture is quite clearly this. If Jesus is enough, then you don't need these other things to complement your life and augment them. But on the other hand, if you just refuse to do these things, it doesn't mean that you're living a holy life. It's really important. So I think this text really does have something to say to us in that regard. But there, as I said, there are many reasons to abstain from alcohol, causing someone to stumble, potential of alcoholism, what it says to your family and your community. But again, Paul says, but clearly, Timothy, if you need to, you can. And don't lean into simply legalism. And then he says in verse 24 and followed the last two verses, some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but others, the sins, they will surface later. It's going to look like some pastors get away with it forever. It's going to look like some people get away with it forever. But this is a wonderful passage for those of us who, who know the Lord and trust the Lord to know that one day all your sin will find you out. You might hide it from your family. You might Look, Judas hid it from everybody. None of the disciples believed Judas was a traitor. None of them. They gave him the money. He was stealing it. He was a traitor. Judas was perfect in that, but one day his sin was revealed. You can know. I don't care how well you've hidden it from your parents, how well you've hidden it from your spouse, how well, pastors, if you're here, how well you've hidden it from your church. It will not stay hidden forever. Thus saith the Lord. However, if you repent of your sin and confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and remove it as far as the east is from the west and never remember it again. The old gospel song says, I'm free from the fear of tomorrow and I'm free from the guilt of the past. I've traded my shackles for a glorious crown. I'm free, praise God, free at last. If you've confessed your sins, you're free from every sin. Don't let Satan hound you and distract you and drag you down by reminding you of the sin that you've committed. I battle that all the time in my life. Just sitting over there this morning, took a picture of you all getting ready to preach, and I'm thinking, I've been such an unfaithful person so much in my life. How do I have any? And then it's like, but I have confessed that, and I've repented of that, and Jesus has paid the price for that, and he's clothed me in the righteousness of his son, and I'm worthy to preach not because of what I've done, but of what Jesus is doing in me. But if you're unrepentant of your sin and you don't confess your sin, you can hide it from everybody, but it's not going to stay hidden forever. And then likewise, he says, good works are not obvious but also those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. One of my favorite Billy Graham quotes ever. You know, when he died a few months ago, I was with somebody. I was trying to remember this morning who it was. I can't remember. But somebody who had been with him on occasion, uh, personally. And uh, he said, I remember asking Dr. Graham one time, what's it going to be like when you get to heaven? And then you get to see the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are in heaven because they attended one of your crusades or responded to one of your calls. 
And he said, Billy Graham said to him, oh, he said, no. He said, when I get to heaven, he said, I'm convinced when it comes to those who've done great things for the kingdom, I'll be somewhere far back in the line. And people we've never heard of will be at the front. We have no idea the faithfulness of some servants of God and what they've done over the years. And they may have gone completely unnoticed. It may be a pastor who served a church of 30 people out in the middle of nowhere. You know, it was a snowy Sunday morning. They almost canceled church. The pastor didn't even show up. A deacon stood up to barely expound the word and didn't do a very good job of it. But a young man slipped in and sat in a pew that morning with just a handful of other believers there in London. And that young man was Charles Spurgeon. And that day he was radically converted. And today he's still one of the greatest preachers the world has ever known. And I read him every week as do millions of others of us who are still great beyond the grave, yet he dead, yet he speaks to us. And it was some some deacon layman in a Methodist church on a snowy Sunday when they almost didn't have church who could barely get the word out that God used in such an amazing way. I got to tell you another story, and I, I know you, but it's a good one, all right? I have a dear friend of mine, and his name is Jeff Christofferson, and he works with me at the North American Mission Board. And listen, Jeff's mom and dad, they lived in Canada. They were in, they were in Alberta, and and his dad was not a believer. His mom was not a believer. Uh, they didn't grow up in a house of believers. But he said this, this layman in their little town in Alberta, there was a Billy, this is back in the 1960s, and a Billy Graham films would come out, and they would come into the theater. Some of you remember that. He said this layman, he brought this Billy Graham film into the, into the theater. And I think it was, uh, um, I can't remember. It was either The Cross and the Switchblade, or it was, uh, I think that was what it was. But they, they brought it into the theater, and, and every night for a week, he said, this, this, this layman would stand. He, he, after the movie was over, he would come out, and they would say they would put the spotlight on him, and this layman would come out there, and he would give the plan of salvation and invite anybody who wanted to come forward to come forward in this little town in Alberta. And he said he did that every night, and nobody came forward. But he said, one night, my mom and my dad just decided they would just go down. There was just one theater in town. They'd go down there, and they would... They would just go to the movies. And I, I've heard Jeff tell this story. First time I heard it, I just started, I, I cried and couldn't stop. And he said, so my mom and my dad went. He said, in the middle of those Billy Graham films, in the middle of the narratives of the story, there's always a crusade scene, and Billy preaches and gives the gospel message. He said, my mom and my dad sort of took hold of each other's hands when that happened. He said, they went out. They didn't go forward. He said, they went out in the car. They sat there in the car, and they began to talk about what they'd seen. And as best as they understood, they kind of prayed as best as they remembered how to pray from what Billy Graham had said in the movie. And he said, within a week or two, they just went to the closest little church near them. He said, and they made their professions of faith. And he said, they took us with them, and so did we. Today, Jeff's the vice president of the North American Mission Board and in charge of church planting all across North America. Started 1,200 churches last year. His sister and her husband are missionaries in Spain. I mean, God alone only knows the impact that that Christian home has had, even on my life through Jeff and his being 
and the churches Jeff has planted. And now, like I said, in the largest denomination in North America, he leads the church planting group. His sister's a missionary in Spain. So fast forward about 40 or 45 years, and the Billy Graham is coming, the, the, I think it's, it's Franklin's coming back to that part of the country or something, and there's a banquet there for, for the organizers. And, and, and he said, Jeff said, my dad went. And, and they, some of them knew that my dad had come to know Jesus through the, through the Billy Graham movie. And he said, my dad was always very quiet, layman, never wanted to share, never wanted to talk. But he said, the, the, the guy just said at the banquet, he said, anybody here come to know Jesus from the Billy Graham ministry here in Canada? He said, my dad didn't do anything, and some people encouraged him. So he said he finally sort of reluctantly, because he's not, he was somewhat shy, he said he stood up and he told the story of how he and his wife went to that movie that night, and then afterward went out in the car and prayed, and then joined a church, and now he's been a deacon, and his son's a pastor, his son's planted churches, his son leads church planting, his daughter's a missionary in Spain. Jeff said an elderly gentleman stood up, went up and shook his hand and put his hand on his shoulder, said he began to weep. He said, you don't know me, but he said, I was the layman that stood there every night and gave that plan of salvation. And he said, for 40 years, I thought that all was just a waste because nobody came to know Jesus. A few months later, that man died. He got to see the fruit of his labor this side of heaven, but I promise you, he, for 40 years, he thought nothing came of that. That's what this scripture is all about, dear ones. Whatever we do in obedience will always be, have, have meaning and it will, it will come to light at some point. Whatever we do in sin and unrepentant will come to light in some point. That's a wonderful way for Paul to end this portion of the letter as he talks about what it means to be a pastor. It's all going to come out at some point.